just past seven o'clock. Ira, no joking tonight. Had a whole show planned and uh, had kind of had to scrap it last minute. And there's a good reason why, Ira. Oh, it's a, a tragedy. Uh, one of uh, one of the saddest days, certainly. Just a day I'll never forget where I was. It's one of those things that you remember. Um, you know, when celebrities pass away, they don't they don't care about you. If something happened to you, they wouldn't mind. But you sort of follow them. Everybody follows people. You feel like you know them. So that's why when they're passing affects more people because more people know them and more yeah. people and especially kids. I mean, I, I found myself checking on a lot of my friends that have kids and checking on the kids themselves. Like, how are you doing today? And you know, for a lot of these kids, this is, this is big for them. Like they really are dealing with, this is hard. I mean, they're, they, they felt that Kobe, I mean, they they have all his jerseys and his shoes and his posters and everything. And, and, and it's one thing that, Oh, you're retired and you're not playing anymore or you're this or you're that, but, but mm -hmm. they can't, fathom that he that he passed away yeah it's funny you know you got here tonight and asked me how old i was when kobe came in and i was in high school junior high so it wasn't my entire life but i could see someone being a little younger than me when, when stewart scott passed away it was like that for me like this had been a guy he'd been a staple of my childhood and like the greatest i'd ever seen on tv so it was you know super traumatic for me when, when that happened and i could see like you said a lot of people have grown up with Kobe's the best basketball player you'd seen, you know, so it's it's a somber day around the country. And we're going to talk to, um, you know, good friend of ours, Mike is a Lino coach at Robert Morris. He's going to join us at uh, 720. And then, you know, oddly enough, Ira, we taped an interview with a gentleman named Steve Beaven. He's the author of We Will Rise uh, just two weeks ago. And this kind of, you know, makes sense to play today. Yes. I mean, he did a book about the Evansville basketball teams and people We're going to have a section of the show where we talk about um, other tragedies, plane tragedies, unfortunately, with sports and in in basketball, the entire Evansville basketball team died in a plane crash. And he just came out with a book on it called "We Will Rise" about mm -hmm. this tragedy, and it, and it was an excellent interview. We aired it, uh, we we taped it a, a week ago, and uh, I was excited for him to come on and, and talk about it. it was and uh, of course, it's I never thought it would be a timely interview. Yeah, and um, you know, so you've got. A honestly a lot of ties to you know Kobe Bryant's last game and you know seeing LeBron you know just pass him um, but at first you wanted to uh, read something that we don't usually do and I, I, <laughs> well, I just, there's a prayer that I like and I think it's it I, I think about it all the time but it's it's it goes birth is a beginning and death a destination uh, but life is a journey a, a going a growing a growing from stage to stage from childhood to maturity and youth to old age from innocence to awareness and ignorance to knowing, from foolishness to discretion and then perhaps to wisdom, from weakness to strength or strength to weakness and often back again, from health to sickness and back we pray to health again, from offense to forgiveness, from loneliness to love, from joy to gratitude, from pain to compassion, from grief to understanding, from fear to faith, from defeat to defeat to defeat until looking forward or backward or ahead, we see that victory lies not at some high place along the way, but in having made the journey stage by stage, a sacred pilgrimage. Birth is a beginning and death a destination, but life is a journey, a sacred pilgrimage made stage by stage to life everlasting. And I read that because it's like Kobe had a journey. And when you look at his career, the basketball career of Kobe, and it, it was like he had a full career, mm -hmm. a full journey. But what's so sad about this is that you really, and you talk to people, is that he was going to be that superstar that at the end of his career did so much more. 
I mean, the fact that people looked up to him, and, and it's weird, as a basketball player, he was a selfish player. He didn't talk to other people. He didn't want to be around other, he was him, it was him, it was him. But as he got older, he became more of a team player, mm. and then more beloved, and more willing to work. And, and the, what he's been doing, just in the few years since he retired, with women's basketball, getting involved with his family, with his girl, with, with his daughter who passed away, uh, Gia, in the, in, the, uh, in the plane crash. Uh, his involvement winning winning Academy Award for a short film about basketball. Mm. Everything that he was involved in, you're just you were so excited for. You almost thought the next forty years, if someone said his next forty would be better than his first forty, you almost could see that happening. And I want to say something. I, I, it's hard to say this, but I was at the the Laker game, the Laker Sixer game, and I'm sitting there, and and uh, Allen Iverson they announced his name, and Allen Iverson waved. He was in a suite. And he just like short wave and was sort of was not really nice to the crowd in terms of how he th- I thought he should have stand stood up. And I'm like, that's what we expect our superstars: come to the games, wave to the crowd, do some, some autograph signing, some endorsements. I just thought Kobe's end of his career, and in many ways like Magic Johnson, was going to be someone who was going to make this huge mm. difference in society. And that's what's so sad about this is that it just was taken away from us and it's just a horrendous tragedy. You know, I agree with you. I think there's a lot, and by a lot, I mean 95% of superstars are just going to fade off into, you know, fade off into whatever they want to do with the rest of their lives, just enjoy their money, as you'd said earlier. And there's other people that you knew were going to make a difference. You knew Shaquille O'Neal was going to be a fixture of your life for the rest of it. And I think it was the same thing with Kobe. I think we would have heard his name and his his relevance would have transcended many more generations and that got cut short. Yeah, exactly. And and then I had something else about Kobe's final game. I mean, I was there April 13th, 2016, and I've never before or since been to anything like that game. Um, and I've attended a lot of sporting events, but that was just extremely unique. Um, the fact that he could announce his retirement, already knew his final game. There was no playoffs, nothing like that, because uh, they were eliminated for playoff co- uh, contention. But the atmosphere around there with thousands of people all the way before the game, just in the arena, and they were all wearing, uh, not Laker gear, Kobe gear. Mm-hmm. Everyone had Kobe. I just don't think any other player would have ever had all that on there. And, and it wasn't because they put something on the seats. They put nothing on the seats. People brought them in. And uh, some of them have lower Marion school alf- high school outfits. And when he was warming up, just the photographers trailing him, going and talking to him the whole game. And then during any break in the game, the video replay board showed one celebrity after another. Um, and uh, it was just tremendous. And then his reign spanned two decades. So it was like all these entertainers, not just like a few, not just a short period of time, they were all there to saw that. And then when the game started, they were pressing, Kobe didn't play well, he shot like five air balls in a row. And they had a terrible year, so you expected this was just going to be another bad game. But then he started turning it on and scoring. And then he was, uh, when he had 40 points, they were still down double digits <laughs> against Utah. And he just started scoring and scoring and scoring until he ended up getting with 60 points. And, uh, and I've just never heard an arena that loud. And then when the game was over, I mean, I have some, I posted some pictures on my Iron Sports Instagram and Facebook page and Twitter account. And you just see this, no one left. I mean, I'm telling you that at Staples, even if they won a title, people would, would and the only, it was like hardcore fans would stay for autographs. Nobody left the arena. Like they wanted to savor it. They did, they, they wanted to savor Kobe's last game. And that's what I just remember. I mean, that, that, and the, and, and the store that sold items for, there was no, as I said, no Laker stuff. Everything was Kobe and there was not one item left. I've never seen an entire stadium. You could not buy one Thing. Everything was bought. That's how this he in L.A. And that's we talk about 
I don't want to compare him to other, but being in one city his entire career, and we're going to talk about how he's chances to move, just his, his impact on that town, but impact around the world of basketball, but especially in the center in Los Angeles. And I think because he, he played very hard, his, it, it's that, 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 that fierce desire. His, he was in great shape. He worked hard. He was a great shooter, but also the great passer. Always wanted to take the last shot and uh, was on one of the greatest, some of the greatest teams, won five titles. Everything you were looking at a person, and the only bad thing you can say about Kobe Bryant is, well, he wasn't as good as Michael Jordan. Really, that's it. Yeah. I mean, the fact is, I mean, he had this tremendous career, and uh, it just impacted so many people. Who do you think, I mean, there's nobody who had a greater final game than him. The only thing that even comes close that I could think of is Derek Jeter getting a, a walk-off hit. To, to end his career, but there's nothing like you know a 16 point game in front of everybody coming out to get you that I can remember at least. Well, unless he would win like if that was 60 and a, you know sometimes the the quarterbacks that retired after winning the Super Bowl would probably be mm -hmm. the Elway and Manning would have been but some sort of a comparison. But it was just the the effect. But that game, I was shocked and I and I was spending time in LA. I could not. I and that's why uh, there's just. In L.A., they just, they're stunned. I mean, he was a fixture of this town. I mean, he wasn't born or raised in L.A. He was mm -hmm. born in, in Philadelphia and raised in, 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 uh, in Italy. Mm -hmm. And instead, he is just, he's more, someone called him the mayor of L.A. He's more than a mayor of L.A. He is L.A. I mean, he is what everything, everybody, he was popular. Everyone loved him. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's funny. Even today, guys like Magic Johnson and you know Shaq are coming out saying he's the greatest Laker, which is a statement to some of the guys who've come before him. Mm, right. So right. let's talk about some of the history because it's, his numbers are just staggering when you look at it. Well, 18-time All-Star. Um, Kareem had 19, so he was second in that. He was a 15-time member of the All-NBA team. I mean, just that's, that's an incredible number. Tw and and 12-time. I mean, we criticize these players. 12-time All-Defensive. Uh, he was only an MVP one time, which is hilarious. But then he was a five-time champion. He averaged 25 points. And people don't think he passed. He averaged almost five assists and almost one and a half steals and plus five rebounds for his career. Um, but I think you know what's amazing is that he he was. I'm from Pennsylvania, so I'm sort of I knew about him earlier because he was mm -hmm. in Lower Marion. He grew up in. Born in Philadelphia, his dad played. We're gonna have Mike Zalino on. His dad played in Italy. His dad was an NBA player when he was young. He moved to Italy, so he would come back in the summers and then play in the fall. And Italy was back and forth. So people heard about this Kobe Bryant. I mean, I've been even when he was nine, ten years old. I mean, I was hearing rumors about this guy in Philly who was so good. And then he was started as a freshman in school, and then he was like this, the player of the year, his junior and senior year, and national college player of the year. And Garnett went pro the year before. And that's mm -hmm. why he decided to go pro to the NBA right after that. But uh, you know, people thought he might go to Duke or somewhere but like that. I uh, see. I don't even remember that. I was too young to know that <laughs> that he was even like looking at colleges. He seemed well, like he was always destined for the, for the NBA. Well, he went like, and he was celebrity. He took this. There was a rock star called Brandy. I don't know if Brandy's popular oh, now. But Brandy, he took Brian Brandy to the prom, so that was a big <laughs> deal. But uh, and then he passed like Will Chamberlain. But it was just like being in from Pennsylvania. You always follow like what's going on in PA, and he was just a, you know a total legend in Pennsylvania. And then and then at, during the draft. The Lakers made this trade for uh, Vladi. They wanted to get rid of Vladi Dibak so they could sign Shaq. The whole thing wasn't Kobe. No one. He didn't come out like LeBron did. Mm -hmm. Like he's going to be this great. Star. No, you're right. And they were shocked. Even when he drafted him with eighth, people were like, "Oh, that's crazy." Because they got rid of Divac, and then the Charlotte drafted him. That was a trade that the Charlotte was going to take Divac, and it was almost scaled the last minute because Divac goes, "I don't want to go to Charlotte. I'm going to retire." But otherwise, then Kobe would have gone to Charlotte. But in the end, or whoever, so they said they had no intention of drafting him. But uh, he ended up going to the Lakers and his first. 
first year, he, he was 18 years old. He came off the bench. He really didn't do anything and averaged uh, like 15 minutes a game. But he did win the slam dunk contest. And then the uh, they were in the playoffs, and he was just a backup player. But everybody, Robert Horry got ejected. Shaq fouled out. And at the end of the Jazz, he shot the game against the Jazz. He shot four air balls in a row in overtime in the playoffs. <laughs> and they lost. And Shaq said, are you mad at Kobe for doing that? He goes, no. He goes, he's the only one with the guts to take that shot. And the next year, he came off the bench again. But he was sixth man of the year. I mean, people like Kobe is like, he worked his way. I mean, that's when we talk yeah. about these players. He really worked his way up and, and did that. And, and after that year, Michael retired. So it was sort of, that was where the handing of the torch because he played two years. Michael retired. ESPN's going to run this uh, series called The Last Dance. And, and then that affected that in terms of, of going forward and then started the rest of his career. You're listening to Iron Sports at 717. In just about three minutes or so, we're going to have Mike Isolino, coach at Robert Morris, um, join us uh, here to talk a little bit more about this and, and uh, you know, the lasting legacy. But, you know, I, you're just starting it. This is when the legacy started. You're right. And I remember this, the passing of the torch, kind of like, who's going to be the next guy? And then this young Kobe Bryant steps up. Well, the first, it was a lockout season. He had 50, he had 50 games. He had 20 points uh, and, uh, and was a star. And then uh, became sort of that star. And then, then the next year, Phil Jackson came. And that was sort of the, the thing that, that, you know, propelled this entire thing in terms of Phil coming and... Uh, the, the game that people talk about is they were down 17 points to Portland uh, in Game 7. Portland run by Scottie Pippen uh, in the uh, Western Conference Finals. And he just started just dominating that fourth quarter mm -hmm. and came and they played Indiana. And I went to Indiana. You know, I've been at like five, four, he won five titles, four of those titles I've been at. And I was at that game in Indiana when, when he played. He missed two of those games. But in Game 5, he, they took it back to L.A. and won their first title in Game 6 when they beat the Pacers. And then in 2001, 2001, they won the title again. I mean, he was averaging 29 points a game. Uh, but they didn't play well during the year. But that playoff run is what they talk about. They went, they swept the Blazers, Kings, and uh, and, and Spurs. They were twelve and zero going to the finals. Thought they were going to that perfect, like the the, the Warriors were going to do. They lost the first game to Iverson and then won three more. So they ended up sixteen and one for the playoffs. And people feel that's one of the greatest teams of all time, even though the regular season record wasn't that good. And then, but all these titles, Shaq was the MVP. And then 2000, 2001, they won the title again. Uh, uh, they they were able to. They they were able to uh, uh, to win to win. Uh, I mean, in 2001, 2002, they won it again, and. Uh, uh uh, there was um, the, the final, the fun, the interesting thing was that at the tooth, at the All-Star game, uh, he was in Philadelphia, he was the MVP, and he came back there, and LeBron was in a high school game at the same time, and they met, and LeBron gave him his shoes and signed them to, to, to I mean, no, sorry, LeBron, <laughs> Kobe gave LeBron his shoes, and, uh, and that was like, there's these pictures of Kobe giving LeBron his shoes, and LeBron talked about it because I was just at the game two days ago about that, and, and that, in that series, they, they played the Nets with Jason Kidd. They won the fi in the finals and won again. So that was three in a row. Shaq was the MVP and uh, uh, of that again. And then you're really thinking, boy, they're going to go. This is going to be uh, um, this is going to be that long run where they're going to win four in a row. But then, you know, then him, he and, and Shaq started. That's where the whole debate because yeah. Kobe suddenly became the debate between who's better, Shaq or Kobe. They didn't get along. They started fighting. They lost to the Spurs uh, uh, the next time, even though just Kobe started scoring. Like in the month of February that year, he had 40 points in a game for the entire month of February. Crazy. Average 40 points. I mean, you were talking about James Harden numbers, but even better. But then they lost to a great Spurs team. And then that final year, 2003, 2004, I was so excited for that year. Carl Malone and Gary Payton. And you felt like this was the last run of the Lakers. And they had this awesome team. It was 
was amazing. It was great. And then they lose to the Pistons. Their fighting was so great. And he had a bad NBA Finals. And they lost to a terrible Pistons team coached by Larry Brown. And I think that would have been... They weren't terrible. I they like were that terrible. It would have given, <laughs> given them six titles. And uh, But that was just... A, that was a total mess. And, and then that was the pivotal moment you know are they going to trade where's Kobe Kobe was going to go maybe to the to the Clippers to play I remember it being like 50-50 is is it Kobe or you know who's leaving (laughs) and then you heard Shaq was traded to Miami and we're here talking about Mm -hmm. this so Shaq's traded to Miami and uh and then Kobe stayed Kobe signed the contract and then uh and then uh, Phil Jackson quit and then he wrote a book uh and called Coach Kobe uncoachable so you're like this is what was so traumatic but then the next year was like Kobe's team and they were terrible, 34 and 48, out mm-hmm. of the playoffs. Phil Jackson comes back to coach with all the, the drama they possibly have. And that's when Kobe had like 62 points in three quarters against the Mavericks. This is the 2005-2016. Scores 81 points against Toronto. I, I mean, I caught the end of that game when uh, that was, I mean, they were losing in the game. It wasn't like he was just running the score up. He actually, they barely won the game. It was amazing. He averaged 35 points for, this, for the series, for the season, but they didn't make it to the, the playoff. They didn't make it to the finals. They lost again to the Suns. Uh, they were up 3-1 and then blew it in, in, in game seven. Uh, but then 2006, 2007, uh, again, they were, he was 29 years old in his prime. Just, then he just became the score. Just were just scoring points, not winning. But then in 2007, 2008, uh, they added Gasol. And that was a difference on that team. And, and they made it to the NBA Finals, lost to the Celtics. Uh, and then he won the gold medal, and that changed a lot. He goes to Italy on that team. They call the Redeem team. Wins the gold medals, the star of the team. The players start to see. I think that's really one of the beginnings of his whole redemption where he where he won that. And then uh, in 2008, 2009, that's when he that, – the, the, the title that he won it the most. He, he was his team. They won 65 games. He was the best player in the game. Um, he beat the Rock, Jazz, Rockets, and Nuggets. And then they beat Dwight Howard in, in, the, in, the, in the, the Magic mm-hmm. in game five games. And I was there. It was just tremendous. And then the second title came, and it was a lot harder. Uh, but, again, this is what Kobe wanted. There was nobody. Oh, you did it doing it because Shaq's on your team. This is your team. And yeah. then he won his second title because he wanted to be like Michael. He wanted to say, in that respect, this is my team. And, that, again, just uh, and people talk about it. he was down 3-2 in the finals uh, to Boston, and they came back home, and he won game six. And then in game seven, he didn't play well, but in fourth quarter, he scored 10 key points, closing that game out. Just a tremendous win for that. Then, go ahead. Go ahead. Go. No, I was going to say, uh, we're still waiting on Mike Isolino here on the uh, True Oldies channel. It's Ira on Sports. We do have another um, great interview coming up that is relevant here. It's Steve Beaven. That's going to be uh, right around 735, probably. He's the author of We Will Rise. We'll have uh, that coming up for you in just a minute, but we're uh, reminiscing on an, uh, just an amazing uh, career and person that we saw in Kobe Bryant. Go, you go, go ahead, I. Yeah, and I just think that it was weird. He, he tried to get that third title, and... Um, but in those periods of time between 2011, he was trying to say, I want to get that other, that sixth title to tie, to tie Michael. But, you know, he was, he, he, they lost to Duran and Westbrook one year, and then they bring in Dwight Howard and, and Steve Nash. And, and 2012-2013 was, was, was like the year. I mean, they brought Mike D'Antoni in, and they were down, the record was 17-25. and 25, And we talk about load management. I mean, that year, Kobe was playing like 48 minutes almost every game and, a, and trying to get the team back, averaging 30 points a game. And at the end of the year, he got them into playoff contention, but he tore his Achilles. And of course, that was sort of like the, the end of, of the, the dominant Kobe. But just the idea that he tried so hard and was playing every game. And you know, we don't see that. We criticize Leonard with load management and these players. Mm-hmm. I mean, literally, I remember that. I mean, watching him, he never set out, just played. Forget about taking a game off. He didn't take a minute off. He no, just right. completely played that whole thing. Then the Lakers, and the big thing that people criticize for is the final three years he played with the Lakers, and 
they signed, they gave him a $50 million contract and then like another like $25 million contract. And people said, Max Kellerman, who's waxing poetically about Kobe now, was just two days ago criticizing that contract. I'm like, he was such a heart and soul of that team. Mm-hmm. And it was so important. And he was what the, the he was, he meant so much to the town. I, I, I think that anybody criticizing that money to give to Kobe, he was the draw, and anything, he was a draw he to the team. Every, yeah, he was selling everything. And he was selling tickets, and their ticket prices are the highest in the league besides the Knicks. And I'm telling you, it's like, they were not going to have Kobe playing for the Charlotte Bob, uh, Hornets or, or New Orleans no. Pelicans. Like, he needed to be a Laker, and that money was well spent. And when you see the love of the city. I mean, that's what you never get. Jeannie Buss did not want to be the owner that said, oh, I didn't give Kobe enough money to stay here. Like, I really give the Buss family and the Lakers, but everything around it. But I really don't think, honestly, it was ever a discussion. Like, I really think... That it was they, the media that was saying that, not them. They were never going to let Kobe play somewhere else. And, uh, and you know, and I say this thing about the Yankees. Like, did you ever think Jeter was going to play somewhere else? Not. Cashman talked and talked and bragged and whatever. But in the end of the day, I would think the Steinbrenners would say, no, Jeter's not playing anywhere else. And I just think that that was one of those big points about it but but and then I was of course we talked about his retirement game when the final game when he scored 60 points I mean he had two bad years when he was injured and then that last, final year he started to play more it was like he announced his retirement everywhere he went it was so exciting to be there and those things uh, let's go ahead and bring in our uh, good friend of Iron Sports it's Mike Isolino uh, coach of Robert Morris Mike thank you so much for joining us today we haven't spoken in a while <laughs> no I haven't uh, good to be back good to help the guys are going well so, Mike, I, I know that you know this has certainly been texting. This is tragic news. I mean, you played in the NBA, uh, and then you also played in Italy. So you sort of get the sense. Now you're coaching college basketball at Robert Morris. As a player, um, when you were over in Italy, I mean, talk about the effect. We we see what the effect is in, in America now, but the effect of Kobe around the world. Uh, and what's it? What was it like in Italy? I know you were sort of there before he became the the superstar. But but talk about Kobe's effect, uh, not just in America, but but worldwide. Well, I think that uh, you know one of the things that that is really different than Kobe than, than, than the people before him is, is, is he lived in a social media world where, you know, people um, had access to watching him in games, uh, had access to social media to see his highlights, his accomplishments. So, you know, he was the type of guy that, uh, you know, really came on the scene, you know, the social media, all that stuff wasn't there with Magic and Bird and, you know, even Michael. Um, Kobe was kind of that first guy that really uh, was in a social media world. So um, he became a worldwide type of uh, icon. And, and, and in terms of you coach, you coach college kids now and college and, and they're about 18 to 22. Like, how did they affect it? I mean, you're around these players. I mean, they grew up as their idol. How, how did they take this loss and, and their feelings to about Kobe? You know, I think a lot of a lot of college players idolize Kobe for what his uh, not just his accomplishments, but his mentality and his approach. And you know, there's times there's times even today where um, you know we use his you know the Mamba mentality and uh, the things that some of the quotes that he had with our own team. And I think a lot of teams, a lot of college coaches uh, throughout the country still use that type because you know he was the guy. That and it's kind of funny. He was kind of the anti-Iverson. Iverson was talking about practice, practice. Uh, it's a joke. Well, Kobe was talking about the work ethic, the practice, the grind. If you want to be great, these are the things you got to do. All the things that college coaches love to talk about all the time. And uh, you know, so I think there's so many players that idolize them, but also so many college coaches that really, you know, 
could use his mentality and his work ethic as a, as a tool to help motivate young players. Yes, and then when you talk about in terms of when you played in the league and, and the effect and just, I mean, you played in the league two years and you saw how, just talk about his ability to be in the league for 20 years and just be the dom, one of the dominant players for, for really like 16, 17 years. And we talked about he was an all-NBA performer uh, like 18 of his years. I mean, it's just 18-time all-star. It's just, you, you, you talk about the grind and how many, how he played. It's just, it's just remarkable. Yeah, you know, it's funny. Uh, we went out there and played the first time uh, we went out there and played USC. Uh, we stayed there right by the Staples Center. And, you know, all the great Lakers you talk about, you know, Jabbar and Magic and Baylor and West and, and, and all those guys. But, you know, it, it, and, and even even when we were out there, you know, LeBron came to town. It's still Kobe town. I mean, you see people at the games, it's Kobe shirts. It's, it's Kobe this. And, 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 the, of all the great Lakers, Kobe is still the one that that people identify with more than anybody else. Like, and his 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 uh, you know so-called icon out there is like incredible. Um, you know, not only for for what he did on the basketball court, but what he does off the basketball court. You know, to have a 20-year career and to be able to play at that high of a level and to stay with the same team. I mean. The only one you can think about that's done something like that is really, you know, Brady. Yeah, well, Mike, I know you're really busy, and, and, I, and I really thank you for coming on to this, you know, very, very, very sad day. And, uh, you know, best of luck on your season, and, uh, and just I appreciate you coming on and talking about, about Kobe uh, and his passing. Thank you very much. You're welcome. He is Mike Isolino from Robert Morris joining us here on Ira on Sports on the True Oldies channel. Ira, you can continue. Yeah, we, uh, I just wanted to go through in terms of saying that, you know, one thing about Kobe, I mean, you, you saw that he was running that Academy Award for the film, uh, getting involved with his daughter's basketball coaching. I mean, he was flying coaching, you know, to a game, the Mama Academy, you see all those people. Just the, the, the impact he had uh, in everything. And it was just, and he was making money, doing the investments, but it was not just endorsements. He was starting companies, developing venture capital funds. He was a mogul, and, and he's a highly intelligent, never went to college, but you know, everyone says he spoke three languages fluently. Mm -hmm. He just seemed like someone who could use that power, everything, and it, that's one thing you, you felt really sad about. And, you know, I was at the Temple, I was at the 76ers Laker game on Saturday. I went to, first of all, Penn, I went to the Penn Temple game and then 76ers uh, Laker game. And, and it was weird <clears> because <throat> that was the game that James passed Kobe in terms of the all-time scoring list to go from fourth to third. And he had 18 points. And, you know, you're there at the game and, and that was what I was thinking. I'm trying to get the picture and the shot and, and excited about that. And, and the Sixers were played great. I mean, it was, it's, I mean, they packed, the place was packed. The Sixers won the game. The Lakers came close at the end. But it was just that. Also, I thought the one point I thought was weird is that when it was interesting because he was passing Kobe in Kobe's hometown. So the hometown that Kobe yeah. has, LeBron was passing, and there, it was Evan there. When LeBron got the basket, I can't believe they didn't stop the game. I, I, I swear I don't know what the rest of It's a lot of criticism is. today. Oh, my. I mean, I, at that point, that's what I thought we were going to talk about. I'm like, hold it. We're going from four to three. We're having the two greatest players to play the game. They pass on points. You're, you talk about load management in this and basketball in these games. And to not stop the game right then and there and pull the ball. It wasn't like, and it was in the middle of the third quarter. It didn't mean anything. 
pull, stop the game, let it happen there, and, and do all those things. I, I have no idea what the refs were thinking. They had to go up and down, and someone called a timeout. I mean, I thought that the Sixers should have called a timeout when they got the ball back after the Lakers scored. Everything about that moment was ridiculous. But then the fans gave him his ovation and everything. And then, you know, Kobe was one of the first persons to, uh, you know, continue. Yeah, to tweet. To tweet him, to tweet out saying it's continuing. I mean, you look at Kobe's final tweets. He's tweeting to Shaq's son to stay tough. He was tweeting to a, uh, to to LeBron. I mean, is an active involvement in these players. And that's what, you know, these players, he really, from someone who was very focused on himself at the end, he was just involved. I mean, if you ever have any chance to do anything, go to ESPN Plus and watch the details. When he sits there and he's watching and breaking down people's games, it was just just amazing. So, I mean, I thought that, that was the aspect. And then I'm driving to the to the Pro Bowl, and the only thing on the sports radio they're talking about is that when Magic tweeted out that Kobe was the best, that one great Laker passes another great Laker. People are like, well, LeBron's not a great Laker, but Kobe is, and that was mm-hmm. the debate. And then, you know, I go to the Pro Bowl, and I'm there, and I'm trying to get into the Pro Bowl, and everything's crazy, and someone calls me on the phone and says, you know, I can't hear what they're even saying. It's so loud. It's right before the game. I'm trying to get my dad in there, and I can't hear, and they say someone died, and I, I'm honestly, I, I thought it was a, a B with another person that we might have think of another athlete you know with the starts with the b troubled athlete yeah, yeah it was in trouble i and i could not believe it and then you start hearing these rumors and then then you hear tmz reported and i said tmz like but no one else followed like it was tmz reported and there was like a 20 minutes and there was nobody else i'm like and people were starting mm-hmm. to say well tmz is saying but what does tmz know but of course they did break like everyone else like michael jackson's winning houston's and prince's but then finally then when the lapd came out about it then you realize that that was it i mean that's what everyone's saying the word you hear how'd you hear it and they didn't announce it at the pro bowl until the second quarter uh, at the two-minute warning, then they put it on the screen. And then it's like, you know, the game itself was a joke. And then that uh, was just made it even more. Uh, yeah, I was at um, a charity poker tournament at the Kennel Club. There's 300 people in the poker room. And then all of a sudden, there's just a whisper going around the room that Kobe Bryant just passed away in a helicopter. And it's like you said, I'm going to ESPN. I'm going to all the major sports sources, and nobody has it. And then someone screenshotted me TMZ's main page, and it was like, wow, I guess this is real because I just didn't believe it at first. Right. And then... You know, you find out what what happened, and, and I, look, I'm in LA all the time. I, this fog in that area is horrendous. Like, I'm gonna go to the Genesis in two weeks. I've been there, and you, they're trying to tee off, and you can't see a yard in front of you. Mm-hmm. It's so bad, and the fog is terrible. And then in like three hours, it's beautiful and sunny. It's really bad. And he he flew off from Orange County in a helicopter, which he flies all the time, and you expected it to to be. But when you get to that area where he was going to Malibu, that's when the fog started to come in. And uh, he, you know, they were flying on visual. We're going to get more evidence. I don't want to pretend I know what I'm doing. I've tried to. T- I talked to like five helicopter pilots today to get information, but mm-hmm. it seems like everyone's saying he should have been on instruments, not visuals. And when they flew there, he was going around. They went to the. They made it to L.A. and then he then he got confused because when in the fog and then they went. The one thing about the LA coastline different than the Florida coastline is it is jagged. There's mountains. You don't have mountains like in this coastline mm-hmm. here in Florida, but you had, and it goes in and out. And he went, when he went from, when he decided, the pilot decided to go south, he actually was headed right into some of these mountains. He passed one mountain by like 100 feet. And then the next mountain, he went down further and didn't see it and then went right into it. If he had instruments, they would have got over. But of course, you know, the people, just a tremendous, I mean, he was, the whole flight was 36 minutes long. It shouldn't take that long to get there. And then, uh, but he, has, he flew everywhere. I mean, the point yeah. is he was on helicopters, and I'm sure this pilot who flew Kylie Jenner is a very decorated pilot. I mean, I'm, they're used to probably flying like this all the time, especially, I mean, he used to fly to games, and you never heard of Kobe, like, missing a game because he didn't get there because the, the weather was bad. I'm mm-hmm. sure they had to fly through bad weather in games, but, 
you know, I hope that was just, and, and people talk about how Stevie Ray Vaughan died in fog as a singer in Wisconsin. Almost the same situation where the pilot got disoriented and crashed into something. You're listening to Iron Sports, True Oldies Channel at 736. I'm Mike Balsamo. Um, do you want to get into our Steve Beaven interview? I think we have a little bit more to cover here with um, Kobe and some of the relevance. Yeah, let me just, before we get into it, the only thing I wanted to mention is that it reminded me of uh, when I was very young, and I don't remember, but people talk about it, was uh, Roberto Clemente. When he was, after this, he just had his 3,000 hit. He was one of the greatest players in baseball's history, and he was helping the, uh, her, the earthquake victims in Nicaragua, and he passed yeah. in a plane crash. I remember when I was 12 years old when Thurman Munson died, and he was just a star catcher for the Yankees, uh, super great catcher, and he was flying a plane, and, and he just on an off day and practicing on his plane driving. And I think that's one thing, and then and then people who follow golf know about Payne Stewart in 1999 and and, and a plane crash when he just won the U.S. Open. Uh, that was one thing that 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 it came to mind, and and we just recently a uh, Roy Halladay in 2017, yeah. Hall of Fame pitcher, was piloting his own plane and crashed. Um, we're going to have on. Um, uh, from team-wise, Steve Beban is going to talk about Evansville basketball. And, and uh, we'll definitely do the interview, but in terms of it was so tragic at the time for the country, but mainly in Evansville. And I think that's what he's going to bring out. And, and the fact that there were players that, like a guy like Mike Duff, who was one of the best high school basketball players in the country, who just two days before played against Larry Bird. But we don't know who they are, what they were, mm -hmm. their names. So um, I think we should just get to the interview when we can and, and talk about that. Yeah, let's uh, catch up with Steve Beaven. This is an interview from a few weeks ago. He's the author of We Will Rise. Hi, Steve. This is Ira, Ira from Ira on Sports. Uh, we're talking about your book, We Will Rise. Um, about the Evansville tragedy in 1977. Uh, first of all, what inspired you to write this book? I mean, we heard about the We Are, you know, we Are Marshall and that book with uh, Matthew McConaughey, the movie. But uh, really, the Evansville tragedy has not been talked about as much, and considering it, it was uh, horrendous. The, the entire Evansville basketball team perished in a, in a plane accident. But what motivated you right now to write this book? Yeah, well, I grew up in Evansville, uh, a couple of blocks from the University of Evansville campus, and this has always been um, a, a, a a major moment in my life, uh, as it is as it is for um, my friends, my siblings, anyone who lived in Evansville at the time, and I wanted to uh, get as much of it uh, on the his historical record as I could. Yeah, the one thing that was interesting in the book is that you spent time talking about Aaron McCutcheon, who was the coach, from 46 to 77, and the fact that Evansville competed in the college division, which is like Division Two, but they had won five national titles, had, but actually played schools like UCLA and, 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 and won and went, won in those games, and that it was like the pro team in that town for Evansville, that the, the arena was filled with 7,400 people, and, and you really brought about fact, the fact how it was such a big deal in Evansville, the basketball team team was so crucial to that, that town. Yeah, it was really a huge institution in, in Evansville. I mean, it, it was a university with only 2,500 or so students, a private school um, affiliated with the Methodist Church. Um, and yet, you know, the entire town was uh, behind uh, the basketball program. And I wanted to make clear, as clear as I could, um, just how much this catastrophe, um, you know, rocked my hometown. It was, it was uh, like, it was unfathomable to us. Um, and establishing uh, 
the basketball program's place uh, within the community. It's very important. I mean, one of the aspects of the book was that in 1977, McCutcheon retired. And at the same time, they're recruiting a player, Mike Doff, who was going to be the the greatest player to ever play at Evansville. 112 schools, you said, were were after him. Indiana State wanted him to be the next Larry Bird, all those things. So he was in play in terms of where he was going to go. And McCutcheon retired. They They brought in Jerry Sloan. People might remember him as the Utah Jazz coach, as the coach for eight days, and then and then and then then he resigned after eight days, and uh, they bring in Bobby Watson. So talk about what Bobby Watson and when he, you know, so he suddenly in '77, the new coach of the team, what he brought to the school. Well, I think that you know after um, Jerry quit, uh, people were just they couldn't believe it. I mean, it had seemed like uh, for years that he was going to come back and coach the team once um, A-Rad retired, uh, and he he did accept the job, and then he quit. So um, I think everybody was taken aback by that. But when Bobby Watson arrived, you know, he swept the city off its feet. Uh, he was uh, very charismatic, uh, good-looking, 6'8". Uh, um, he, uh, he's 34 years old. And he brought a lot of energy and enthusiasm to uh, the program and to the city. So in the limited time he was there, he was a very popular guy. And then you talk about how Mike Doff went to Missouri, but Watson was able to get him to, to renege on his commitment to Missouri and, and come to Evansville to, to actually sign with Evansville. Yeah, that's kind of a strange, a strange part of it because um, – you know, uh, Mike really, really did not want to go to Missouri. It was clear. Um, uh, as the way he told it at the time, uh, Norm Stewart and his assistants, uh, you know, came to his house in El Dorado and essentially um, forced him to sign, and he just wanted to get it over with. Uh, but he knew he had made a mistake. And so once uh, – I think Bobby Watson found out that um, Mike uh, was still potentially available. I think that uh, Bobby started making some trips over to El Dorado. And, um, you know, that is sort of how the process played out. Mike eventually uh, reneged on his uh, letter of intent with Missouri and signed with Evansville. And that was a huge, huge moment because it suggested that in division one evansville would be able to compete with the best for the best players in the country right because that in 77 they were actually moving with uh up to division one well they changed from college to university division but they were then going to be in the university division playing with all the big time schools but and then and talk about the first year they only played was it four games and and the game before the plane crash they had played Larry Bird and Indiana State in a, in a huge game when Indiana State was ranked I think number eight you said in the book at the time. Yeah, they played. Uh, that was oh gosh, was that on the twelfth or the eleventh? I can't remember. But they did play. Uh, they played Indiana State. Larry Bird had a phenomenal game, just a, a dominant game. Uh, and Indiana State uh, um, just absolutely buried Evansville. And I think that was a real eye-opener for uh, Bobby Watson because he felt um, his team was not prepared to play. And so when he convened practice uh, um, the next day or so, uh, he was still angry, 
and he still felt they weren't ready to play, and he kicked them all out of practice, um, I think, the day before they got on the plane. Wow, it is, and you mentioned in the book that Aaron McCutcheon, who was a coach for 30 years, he, he bust everywhere. But when Bobby came, he wanted to be big time. So even so, they were playing Middle Tennessee State, and normally they would probably just bust to that because it wasn't that far away. But that, and because they were, you know, Watson wanted to appear to be more a big time school, that they flew. So talk about a little about what you, you know what you were able to piece together and, and all the evidence about what happened that night with the flight. Yeah, I think that yeah, I think that Bobby Watson wanted to show that this was a big time program. He wanted recruits to know that you know uh, they were going to play the best teams like DePaul and Indiana State uh, in those first four games, and also that the accommodations were going to be fantastic. So, um, so they 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 flew. The plane was late that afternoon on December thirteenth. It was three hours late. Uh, when it finally arrived, it was a it was a charter plane, a private plane. Finally arrived, um, the crew uh, just tossed all of the luggage in the back of the plane, uh, and the uh, and did not uh, make all the uh, mechanical checks that it should have, um, including uh, taking these locks off of the uh, off of the wings. So the plane was unbalanced. Too much luggage in the back, and these locks made it so that the pilot um, was not able to uh, properly steer the plane. So they took off. Um, they could never get much altitude. Uh, they the 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 plane, uh, you know, clipped the top of some trees. I believe a street light. Uh, the pilot was heading back to the airport for um, uh, uh, an emergency landing when uh, the plane just lost altitude and uh, dropped into a ravine and exploded. And uh, it was just, and as you said on the book, there was 29 passengers, the whole basketball team, but I, you, you mentioned in the book how there was one survivor, but that he was not, he didn't, one of the, I think it was one of the student managers, but then he didn't survive by the time he got to the hospital. Um, I think that it was Greg, I think it was Greg Smith who had been a walk-on, um, and he was still alive. There were four people still alive when the first doctor, who was a neighbor, uh, ran, ran down there. Um, and then three died at the scene. Greg Smith was taken by ambulance to the hospital and um, died five minutes before his parents arrived. Mr. Terrible. We're talking to Steve Beaven about We Will Rise, about the Evansville basketball team, the tragedy in 1977. Um, you spent a time in your book of talking about there were, there were like the assistant coaches who weren't on the plane, not everybody a part of the team. There was a manager that didn't make the trip. There was a couple of players that were injured that didn't make the trip. So, I mean, they sort of, you know, it's a, it's, you know sort of escaped death almost by not uh, being on that trip. And, and you followed how that affected them from the, uh, from the accident. Yeah, the, the two of the, I think all of the, Bobby Watson was the only coach on the plane. Um, uh, one was uh, recruiting in Florida and, and learned about the crash uh, when he picked up the newspaper the next day. Uh, one was um, recruiting in uh, Kentucky and planning to drive down the next day. Um, 
So, yeah, I mean, it was a life-changing event for, um, you know, everyone close to the program. And, um, you know, it affected everybody in different ways, but it, it was a life-changing event. Well, and then, of course, after a tragedy like this, and, and you, you talked about the funerals and how everybody's going to the funerals, it was horrendous to read all this. And, and, but the school decided to continue with the program uh, for the next year, and then they hired a coach called uh, Dick Walters, who was 30 years old, uh, to resurrect an entire program that had lost all the players, recruits everybody except, they said, the two assistants. So talk about the decision to hire Walters and what Walters brought to that program and trying to resurrect it. Yeah, I think, you know, Dick was 30 years old. He was crazy ambitious. Um, he had always wanted a Division One head coaching job. And, you know, I think uh, he basically promised to pour um, every bit of himself into rebuilding the basketball program. Um, and he turned some folks in Evansville off. They felt like he was um, – kind of like uh, tried to act like a big city guy, uh, that he was he was arrogant. Um, and, and, you know, to an extent, he was. He would probably admit that um, today that he was. But uh, he my I believe that they really needed somebody with an edge like that to really turn it around. And, um, you know, Dick had that edge and uh he was willing to do, you know, everything within the rules to uh, uh, to rebuild the program, and he did. Yeah, and you talked about how the NCAA waived transfer rules, so he had to bring in recruits, he had to get transfers, he did everything. But he did amazing. I mean, 1980, they played UCLA and, and almost lost, and, and even 1980 and 81, 19-9, and you traced how the team just got better and better, and it culminated in 81 and 82 when they were 23-6, and six. Uh, they beat Loyola in the tournament, the Midwestern Conference tournament, to make it to the NCAA tournament. Uh, and about that, it just just the it was really interesting in the book how you showed in those three years how he was able to really build that team up and how the players developed and how the players a lot of these you know these none of these players were there at Evansville, but they knew about the tragedy. But they were sort of Walters had to walk that fine line between going to the future but also remembering the past. Yeah, he he always said that. Um... You know, he didn't want um, everybody to uh, forget the crash, but that, uh, that uh, you know, w- w- to rebuild the program, we all needed to move on. Um, and so, yeah, the players, you know, many of them did not have a clue about Evansville's history. One example is Brad Leaf. He was a six-five shooting guard, uh, a little slow, but a great shooter. He is the dad of the Evansville Pacers, uh, T.J. Leaf. And it was really Brad uh, uh, really sort of grew into the city. Um, He went to Evansville because he knew he could play immediately. Um, But by his senior year, he really felt like he owed the city. And he he wanted to win. Uh, He wanted to give something back to Evansville. Um, uh, because the city had uh, supported his team so well. 
Wow, and then you, you, you spent some time talking about, I didn't know, I didn't remember if they had won or lost the game, but uh, they played Marquette in the first round. And Doc Rivers, who is the coach of the Clippers, is, uh, was the player, star player for Marquette at the time. And you, and you showed, it was interesting, it was at that year of uh, the tournament in 82, Michael Jordan's North Carolina team was the number one seed, and they played right before Phi Slamma Jamma, the, the Hakeem Olajuwon, Clyde Drexler team. So there was all these you know, famous players and everything, but Evansville played in a game against Marquette. And, and it was great, you know, a tremendous game, and that they barely lost at the end of the game. Yeah, I mean, but basically, I was trying to show uh, you know, that uh, to put Evansville, um, this tiny college, in the context of you know the major powers of of college basketball at the time, um, and uh, they did play some big games. Um, in the end, the fact that they lost uh, to Marquette, I think, doesn't even doesn't even matter, because uh, really the larger the larger issue, the larger thing, and uh, is is the tradition of the program, and the fact that you know it, people were crazy about that team. You know, uh, five thousand people came uh, to the airport to greet them after their second to last game of the season uh, in sub freezing temperatures. Uh, they couldn't all fit uh, uh, in the, in the, the area outside. So the line snaked through the, uh, the airport through the terminal and out and out to the front, um, you know, 12,000 people a game. Uh, it was a, a really incredible season um, and I think, you know, n- nothing will make up for the crash, um, especially for those who lost um, uh, sons or husbands or brothers. Um, but the 82 season was something special for Evansville. And then we're talking to Steve Beaven, who wrote the book, We Will Rise, about the Evansville basketball team tragedy uh, and, and, and rebirth, really, because you spent half the book talking about how the team was, did come back and, and, and make the NCAA tournament. And, and you, you know, it was, it was interesting to see how they, they played. You had them playing DePaul uh, and almost lost that game, breaking their 67-game win streak when they were number three in the country. But I was shocked at the end how Dick Walters, who had resurrected this program in 1985, they said they, he was, the president fired him from his job, even though he signed, because he didn't sign to Wisconsin, but he's, he, he, after 85, fired him, and he never coached again after that 85 season. I was just amazed to read that. Yeah, it is kind of amazing. Dick regrets to this day, I think, that he didn't take the Wisconsin job uh, because it was, you know, they were, it was, the program was, uh, you know, horrific uh, up in Madison, but it would have been perfect for him. He was a master rebuilder and um, he had all of these uh, contacts in the Midwest and, and uh, as you know, in terms of recruiting, Um I, he applied for other jobs. I know he was a finalist um, at, at, at at least one other school, um, but uh, yeah, he was he was fired from Evansville in '85 and never coached again. So again, well, Steve, thanks a lot for coming on. Um, your book is "We Will Rise." It's a great read. I mean, you're an excellent author. Uh, it's something as we're, you know, we're in the middle of college basketball season right now. And I just loved how you captured the fact that Evansville basketball team was that, I mean, it was like their basketball team, the football team, the hockey team, it was that team and how the town rallied around. It. And I thought that it was great with your writing style, how you were able to, to bring that all together. Oh, great. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thanks a lot, Steve.
7.55. It's Iron Sports. This is the True Oldies channel. I'm Mike Balsamo. Kind of interesting, some of the you know the parallels there and the timing of, of this interview. Yeah, I mean, it's tragic. I mean, not only Kobe, who passed with his daughter, but two other families uh, lose, you know, with their families. And it, it's just one of those things. And I'm telling you, if you guys, if someone's looking for a book to read, it just came out, Steve Eben, We Will Rise. It, it's a book that... that I mean, it talked about because we're, right now we are in the midst of what happened, and and it's sort of like what how this this does the before and after, and the, it is a sad book because it talks about Evansville, but you know Evansville was like you know to us to the town that team was that, and then and how the families moved you know worked through this through their grief and everything. It's a really excellent book, I, and I think someone will find it very timely now. We've got a few minutes left here. Let's shift gears. You were at the Pro Bowl yesterday. You know, we talked last week. I actually, I went to the Pro Bowl, I guess it was nine years ago, last time I was here, and I had a good time, because there was no rivalries, it was just fans in the stadium, nobody's really paying attention, (laughs) you know, it was kind of interesting. Watching it on TV, though, is just unbearable. I mean, the hockey NHL All-Star game was on Saturday, their skills competition was Friday, that stuff's entertaining to me, and it's... It's still not as good as real hockey, but it's so much better than the than the Pro Bowl, what they put out there on TV. Yeah, I mean, it was, I'm first Pro Bowl I ever went to was in Orlando. You have the whole Super Bowl aspect here, and, and of course, this is putting the damper on everything, and the game was already with the Kobe trying to get information. I mean, nobody was paying attention to the game. Yeah. The game was, was terrible. I mean, I think in person, it's even worse than on TV. I know that sounds really bad to say, but they don't try to tackle at all, and then when someone runs, it's like if you have buddies out there and you're playing football and some guy runs, and you're like, oh, I scored a touchdown. It's like, well, I didn't try to tackle you. And like they didn't know when they were going to blow the play dead or not blow the day play dead, and it, it it was a joke. I mean, it was like when you saw someone scoring a touchdown, it's like yeah, because like DJ Clark caught the ball and they like wrapped him up, but nobody went to tackle him hard, and, and only Von Miller was out there like tackling people. It reminded me like in Wedding Crashers, where like Vince Vaughn was it like mm-hmm. joking around, and then the one guy uh, Bradley Cooper Bradley Cooper was trying to tackle people. <laughs> he was like the only one out there, and then Kirk Cousins on offense was like the only one they were trying to to hit. He got hit like three hits. I mean, it was it was an, it's like literally they should almost make flag football. I know that sounds weird, but it's the only thing because you don't even know when the play stops. And it could be fun because you have Breeze throwing it to Devontae Adams. Like all the stars play, but if they could get hurt in those games, then they wouldn't do those things. So, no, of course. And I don't blame them for that. It is funny how certain guys get preferential treatment. Poor Kirk Cousins, the only one um, getting hit out there. Drew Brees actually got hurt in a Pro Bowl, didn't he? Yes, and that's why he didn't go to the Dolphins because he got hurt in the Pro Bowl. And then he came down to Miami, and San Diego decided they didn't want to get rid of him for Phillip Rivers. And then he came to Miami, and the doctors here said, Your shoulder is is too bad you can't play and then of course then New Orleans doctors look at him and say look he's going to be able to play and the New Orleans doctors were better than the d- Dolphin doctors that was uh, one of the long one of the many things in a long line of Dolphins you know bad personnel choices and that's probably why we are uh, where we are today they they Mess with the new onside kick rule, but did you happen to see any of that? Yes, I saw it, and, and it, I like it. In terms of the onside kick, which people aren't getting, is you get the ball in the 35-yard line, and if you get the first, if you get 15 yards, you keep the ball. I think that's a better. I'm almost starting to like that because they don't. If you're going to have the onside kick where nobody can get it, this is actually a different way, and you can run a play that way. Now I'm concerned that you can get penalties that way. People, if I'm a team, I'm going to really search to try to get a penalties, but they tried it and it didn't work in that game. But uh, it was the first time. I think it was the first time they ever tried that in an NFL well, Pro Bowl game or whatever. So. We are, uh, geez, six days away from knowing who's going to be the NFL Super Bowl champion. 
Talk to me about the tickets and how this breakdown goes, because I know you're, you're going, aren't you? I, I know you're getting ready to, at least. I, I don't know. This could be the one I don't go to. I, I, this is, I want to say something. This, we'll see what, I mean, the Kobe, it's just, it's just transforming this game. I mean, I, there was nobody talking. I mean, I listened to the shows. Nobody's talking about Super Bowl at all. Mm-hmm. Um, it's in South Florida, and, it, and it's cast a pall in terms of the game. Uh, the Clipper game today, tomorrow, is going to be one of the biggest basketball games of all time. I saw the ticket prices on that of like 2000 to get in, and, and they just canceled the game a few minutes ago. Um, um, I think that the, for the but look, I went to three NBA Finals games, three World Series games this year, uh, two college, play, two NFL playoff games, the uh, LSU Clemson game, the National Championship game. I mean, of those nine games, if I wanted to sit in a similar seat, it's those nine games alone are less than the Super Bowl. It's crazy. Uh, the prices have become so much, and it doesn't make virtually to spend the five six thousand to sit in the worst seat in the house is ludicrous and, and I, I'm honest I paid last time they had the foot game here I had a first row of the upper deck for eight hundred dollars and I paid for that and it's it's what happened is the league doesn't let you sell the tickets the league gives the tickets out and if you want the tickets or you're a season ticket holder if you try if they see it on StubHub you're gonna lose your tickets if you work for just you know like Gatorade and you sell it you're gonna lose your job nobody wants to lose their job so there's only a few tickets that are available and those tickets just get priced and a lot of those tickets that te- what the league does the league owns those tickets I mean they have Seventy percent went to the AFC champ. Seventeen to the NFC champ. Five percent went to the Dolphins, and the rest go to the teams. And these players get the tickets. Every yeah. player is allowed two tickets, and twenty-five percent to sponsors. But if nobody's allowed to sell their tickets, I mean, I mean, I paid you know a few hundred dollars and sat in a fifty-yard line seat to the 49ers the game before. I mean, it's insane that the prices of Super Bowl are through the roof. It's it's almost doubling in price. Um, I don't know if I'm going to go. I, I I expect only the day before do the prices little drop. But what I've been looking at is. You know, this is looking like a six, seven thousand dollars to get in Super Bowl. I mean, it's insane, and uh, and it's not the seat you want to sit in. No, it's not. It's, it a, not. it's the worst seat in the house, and it's terrible. And it, it's just not a. It's it's just it makes it it makes. I'm into five, six Super Bowls, and uh, uh, but this seems. I mean, if the Steelers were in it, I guess I'd figure some way. But it it, it, it is a problem, and it, it's. I I think the league should let people sell their tickets. I, there are empty seats because people just they don't want to go to the game. They want to party, but they know if they put the tickets on StubHub, they try to sell the tickets, and they get caught, they're going to lose their jobs. Gonna, there's reasons they don't want it, so they just don't take that risk. You know, it's funny. I was thinking because I know how expensive they are, that if I want a pair of tickets somehow, I would sell them as opposed to going. It's, it's not that not easy to sell them. See, if you want, even people who win them in contests, you have to go there and pick them up yourself. You'd almost have to work an arrangement now where I, the person has to come. It's, it's, it's so complicated now that I know people who won these tickets and they have to go. Either you go or you have to go to the stadi- stadium and then pick the tickets up there the day of the game and then you're in and then you have to go in. The, it's really hard. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's almost like taking someone's, like selling your airline ticket. I know that sounds crazy yeah. now, but if you like said, oh, I have a ticket, I I want to sell it to you. And you're like, no, it's under my name. You could show up at TSA with a different name on your ticket. <laughs> well, it's funny. We've talked about the Masters, and I assume that's how the Masters work, that the people that do get win those lotteries and stuff, you have to go. It's easier to buy Masters tickets. They really? still allow stuff. This, there's nothing like this. There's no, I, I guess, Academy Awards or, or watching <laughs> impeachment hearings or something like that. I mean, there's nothing like this in sports. I don't consider it a sports ticket. I consider it like Academy Awards ticket. So let's uh, talk about the game uh, with the few minutes we have left here. I... I'm, I think the first person I, that is believing that San Francisco is going to win this game, I think it's going to be one of the best Super Bowls we've seen in a while, but I'm taking the San Francisco side. I think America is favoring KC, and I think that line's going to get even more in KC's favor before the kickoff. It's only a one and a half right yeah. now. Um, it opened to pick them. 
you know, you look at the analytic people who look at the game, and you look at stats, like the Niners games 7.38 yards per pass and only allowed 4.7. And you're saying, oh, boy, this is going to be the perfect offense versus the perfect defense. San Francisco was in the top five in defense. They were number two, and they were num- but they were number four in offense. And they were only a slightly behind Kansas this City is in why, offense. Yeah. So the point is that people don't realize that San Francisco's offense was – was great this year, and their defense was just elite. And San Francisco and Kansas City's offense, of course, was elite, but their defense wasn't. And so a lot of the analytics say this: they really like San Francisco, like you're saying. Is like it doesn't they feel like in this case? And if you're looking at the game, you're saying Patrick Mahomes. I mean, he's the difference. And 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 you're and you're saying Jimmy Garoppolo, as I said, is probably going to fumble the ball and make mistakes. I'm going to pick Kansas City simply because of that. Simply because I, I I just think that Patrick Mahomes will make that crazy play when everything breaks down. When the San Francisco defense has three guys on him, that he's going to throw the ball 70 yards to Tyreek Hill down the field yeah. and score. Uh, but besides that, I just think that that I just I've seen San Francisco play three times live this year. I guess anything. Jimmy Garoppolo cannot fumble the ball. I mean, he cannot make a stupid mistake. No. I, I just feel like and uh, I think that's where I'm, I'm I'm not sold. I just am not sold on Jimmy G. He's had some really good games but I just think his turnovers and, and Mahomes. And you know, the good thing about Kansas City is they think they were down. Tw- I mean, the time when you could knock out Kansas City was when Houston had them 24 nothing. That's what everybody was hoping. Knock Mahomes out. Like it, That's when they should have been lying. And they yeah. came back from 24 nothing and won. Well, th- I was going to say in both games, they look like that they had a chink in their armor there for a little while. If that if San Francisco gets up three touchdowns, this game's over. You're not coming back on that defense, right. at least in my opinion. This isn't the Texans' defense. I agree with. I think that America's going to favor the Chiefs because this is the team that's been in our face for three years since Patrick Mahomes got on the scene. It's been this is the most scary offense in the league. They've got the best tight end. They've got the fastest receiver. I understand why they look so scary, but it's like you said. Having taken the, the second best defense and then matching it with an offense that's just a, a slight caliber below, I'm going to take that good defense. And, uh, you know, I had a, a friend say, well, Jimmy G only threw 10 times and then in the last game. That's a good thing that you can yeah. win games with your quarterback throwing 10 times. Well, you're wondering, you know, Richard Sherman, the last time he was in the Super Bowl when they lost, Seattle lost, and, and, and being the all time great player he is, you, you expect. He's going to come up with a major play. Like I almost think that you know, or Richard Sherman could could read. I mean, someone like Richard Sherman who went to Stanford. He's one of those intelligent football players. He has probably studied everything about Mahomes. And you're thinking he might have this, you know, make that key interception and return it for a touchdown. And you know, Darrell Rivas said, "Oh, he could be Burnham. He's, You know, he's someone. I, I, I mean, you could almost imagine Richard Sherman having two interceptions in this game. Uh, Bosa getting some key sacks. D. Ford getting. I mean, the San Francisco defense from you know is just so loaded on the defensive yeah. line. And, and and if Kansas City's offensive line just wilts under the pressure, uh, as, a, as someone was writing, Kansas City has one way to win, Mahomes, Mahomes, Mahomes. San Francisco can either, Jimmy G could throw the ball 30 times. Yeah. Emmanuel Sanders is out there. Uh, Dabo Samuel has played great at wide receiver. Um, uh, Kittle's a tight end. And then, you have, and, and then you have the running game. And they have many ways they can win. There's a lot of things they can do. Kansas City can only win one way. And you sort of want, San Francisco is the safer in terms of your thinking. Well, this team can win seven, eight different ways. Say, yeah. If Mahomes has a, if you tell me Mahomes had four interceptions, they've lost. I mean, there's no yeah. other way. He's going to have to have a four or five touchdown game, 400 yard passing, and then it's win. No, any other way, they're not going to win this game. I agree with you wholeheartedly. So we talked about the Super Bowl. Where else might you go this week? 
Um, I don't know. I think we're trying. Let's work on the Super Bowl with this. <laughs> I mean, I went to the game. I said I, I flew uh, and I came in into the Sixer Laker game, and I thought that was awesome. V two and the Penn Temple game, and then go to the Pro Bowl. I mean, I was like two nights I didn't sleep going to those sporting yeah. events. But uh, I look, it was it's just great for South Florida. I, I you know it's it's, it's uh, it definitely casts. You wondered how this is going to week. This week is going to be very different in terms of being a Super Bowl week and what's going to happen. Uh, but if you have a chance to go down to South Florida, I mean, if you can't go to the game, there are so many events down by the stadium. Go online. There's if you have kids, take them there on Saturday. They have a gigantic fan fest around the stadium. Um, that's what's you know that's what's so fun for the kids. I mean, you don't have to take them to a game to have fun. Get down there. It's good. It's all day. The traffic isn't so bad. I just would encourage people. It's not in South Florida. It's been in in a decade and and it might not be back since i've lived yeah yeah, i I think that i think people should just go in and see it and 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 buy some souvenirs and do all those things forget you watch the game on tv and everything but but definitely go down and enjoy it you're so close and and i think it's something that's really special and the events around it are tremendous and i always expect everyone to go and and again uh you know, our, our this show is, is I'm just still so saddened by Kobe's passing, and of course our thoughts go out to Kobe, his family, the other families on the helicopter, and uh, hopefully we can, you know, people can grieve and 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 certainly move on from this. And that's why that book We Will Rise by Steve Even talked about how the town of Evansville and the families were able to recover from that. Yeah, I want to thank uh, Steve Beaven so much for coming by. Also, Mike Isolino, coach of Robert Morris. On behalf of Ira, I'm Mike. Let's talk next Monday night. Ira on sports.